Welcome to the Clinical Care Options Infectious Disease Podcast. I'm your host, Jennifer Swanson. Today's episode features audio from a call between colleagues discussing lessons from lockdown in hepatocellular carcinoma and liver transplant care in the COVID-19 era. I'm delighted to introduce our expert faculty today, starting with Dr. Paul Kuo. He's Professor of Medicine and Director of Hepatology at Stanford University School of Medicine in Palo Alto, California. He's joined by Dr. Graham Foster, Professor of Hepatology on the Liver Unit and Consultant Hepatologist, both at Queen Mary University of London in the UK. So let's get started and hear what Drs. Kuo and Foster have to say about lessons learned in the management of liver cancer and liver transplantation during the COVID-19 pandemic. Hi, I'm Paul Kuo from Stanford University, and I'm glad to be here with my friend and colleague from the UK, Dr. Graham Foster, who is consultant hepatologist at the Queen Mary University of London. Paul, thank you very much indeed. Always a pleasure to talk to colleagues. And today our brief is to think about COVID and its impact. And we're gonna focus on liver cancer, liver transplantation, but I hope we'll get a chance to get a little broader than that and talk about some of the public health changes and some of the learnings from the COVID pandemic that can help make our lives and our patients' lives a little easier. So let's kick off with liver cancer. I don't need to remind this audience that this is a bad malignancy. Getting on for a million people a year are going to die from hepatocellular carcinoma. And the big causes of liver cancer, of course, are the metabolic disorders, alcohol, obesity, and the viruses. And of course, out in some parts of the world, it's hepatitis B, predominantly in uh, East Asia. And then, of course, I'm afraid hepatitis C rearing its ugly head in large parts of the Indian subcontinent. So we've got a lot of challenges to prevent people developing liver cancer. But I think for the moment, we're gonna think about how we can treat liver cancer. I've always been fairly pessimistic and a bit nihilistic, I have to say, about liver cancer treatment options. I don't think we've made the huge strides that other malignancies have. We haven't seen the genomic profiling that's really dominating many of the malignancies that are being treated so much more successfully. And we're a little bit stuck in the dark age with cut it out or burn it out, but we're getting a little more sophisticated. We're getting better ways of locally treating our malignancies. We're starting to see the um, immune modifiers come into liver cancer therapy. We've got the first batch of kinase inhibitors starting to move out. Paul, are you more optimistic about the future of treatment for liver malignancies? Yes, I, Graham, I, I think we are seeing now more multimodality approaches to hepatocellular carcinoma, number one. Number two, the pandemic has forced us to be much more efficient in how we approach these uh, treatments of these malignancies as well. I think that we've been able to not only, uh, because the pandemic has disrupted our typical standard of care treatment paradigms, we've been able to give individuals who might not in a pandemic have difficulty accessing some of these therapies. We, through video visits and other means, we've been able to see and treat these individuals virtually. And then we can bring these individuals to the hospital for their treatments. And you talked about several of the various treatment modalities here. You know, we've been selecting uh, some of the modalities as either bridging therapies before transplant or just for treatment options for those who are not transplant candidates. We've been now utilizing 
more therapies that allow patients to get in, get their therapies, and then get home. And this reduces their potential exposures during the pandemic. As you well know, many of these individuals with their underlying liver disease can ill afford to acquire a COVID infection. Yes, I think you're right. It, it's surprising how many of the things that were absolutely essential and we couldn't do without suddenly seem to be melting away. And we're starting to realize that we can really streamline our workup. I think that's been helped by the attitude of patients. They don't want to come in and have lots of hospital visits. They want to come in, get treated and get home. And as you say, day case treatments are very much the order of the day. I think where COVID for me has really impacted on cancer is, as you say, not so much in the treatment, but in the diagnostics. And I think our screening for liver cancer has fallen woefully by the wayside. We're starting to see large numbers of people present, sadly, with pretty aggressive cancers that have reached a stage where resection and local regional therapies aren't possible. So I think our screening programs are where we've been hit the hardest by COVID. I absolutely agree, Graham. And so one of the things that we have tried to adapt to is that uh, when possible now, and this isn't always possible due to reimbursement, but if possible, I'm more favorable, particularly in the pre-transplant setting, to routinely getting uh, high-quality axial imaging at our institution, just simply because if the surveillance interval is disrupted because of COVID, I think if you have a high-quality CT or MR, that's more reassuring, I think, for a longer duration than, say, somebody who has no known malignancy, not really in the transplant queue yet, or transplant evaluation queue, but is getting ultrasounds, which, again, is our standard of care, but we all know it has limitations. One of the advantages of being uh, of getting regular surveillance ultrasounds, though, is certainly they come back every six months. But as you said, Graham, there are now instances, and we, like every other institution, have, have seen patients who, with every good intent, have tried to keep up with the surveillance programs, but it's just very difficult during this last two years. Yeah, that's an interesting thought about going for MRIs and CT scanning. We, we've taken a slightly different approach, interestingly, and we've been trying to take ultrasound scanning and diagnostics out to the community. So we've set up community hubs, which are separate from the main hospital, so people can try and avoid contact with others. And we're just starting an initiative linked to our hepatitis C program, interestingly, going into some of the addiction services, people who are very reluctant to turn up to hospital. We're taking vans out and trying to put ultrasound machines on them to see if we can introduce scanning in the community. So different approaches to the same problem, which is how do you get the reluctant to turn up to an environment which is awash with a virus they don't want to catch? And it's not easy. No, it's not. And particularly when we diagnose hepatocellular carcinoma now, I mean, every institution, including our own, has just standardized approaches to how we treat the disease stage, determine if they're a transplant eligible candidate, and then uh, move them along with their either bridging therapies, resections, or, and liver transplant evaluation. Now, we certainly have continued this, and it's nice that all of these multidisciplinary tumor boards are now all converted to virtual, which I, I think after the pandemic, I'm not sure that's going to go away because it is just something that allows people to have access to multidisciplinary experts regardless of uh, where you are and regardless of whether or not you're in a pandemic or not. But, you know, we have been able to now put our patients with early cancers. We, we try again to treat these individuals with, if you will, single uh, local regional therapy treatment options, such as transarterial chemo which is really our preferred route. These patients come in and they can 
go home the next day. And we are tending to try to, if we can, minimize the therapies that require multiple trips, although obviously when required, it is obviously required. And so we have evolved here and we still have been able to successfully treat these individuals and downsize individuals when appropriate to make them eligible for transplantation. And again, like you, we don't have mobile units, but we do have the advantage of having multiple imaging centers across the Bay Area here. And that has allowed our patients to get their imaging post-treatment at either one of our centers, or of course, we can also acquire these images locally as well and review them when available. Yes, I think that's the the way forward, isn't it? Let's put the diagnostic facilities as close to the patients as we can. But you've been taking it a step further, haven't you? Almost do-it-yourself surgery. I think your transplant evaluation program is now almost entirely virtual, isn't it? Yes, Graham. We've been able to complete much of our program. We've been able to complete these evaluations, testings virtually. Not everything, obviously. You know, our surgeons still need to evaluate these individuals. But, you know, with high-quality imaging, with our ability to conduct virtually all of the other interviews by a video visit, we've been able to complete transplant evaluations virtually. And this has allowed us to continue to have patients undergo transplantation, get list evaluation, get listed, and get their appropriate pre-transplant care up until the time they come into the hospital. We have also, I will just add, and we can talk about this a bit later, substantial number of our transplants certainly have been those who present with acute on chronic uh, liver failure. And for us, the pandemic has really led to a marked increase in the number of alcohol use disorder referrals that we're getting now, Graham. Many of these individuals either present to clinic or are just transferred from the hospital. So that's another dynamic that has changed in the pandemic. Alcohol was already on the way up, but, but certainly the disruption, I think, of so many individuals that we've seen worldwide who do have issues with alcohol use disorder, uh, their support systems have been disrupted. And we, like every other center worldwide, has seen a marked increase in the number of individuals coming to us with acute alcohol-related liver injury. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. We are awash with acute alcoholic hepatitis on our wards at the moment. Some very young people, very sick with bilirubins in the, the many hundreds. And that's really a new feature for us. The overall global statistics in England are alcohol use has risen by about 20-25%. That, of course, has coincided with a reduction in counselling and support services. A lot of the support services have really struggled to see people face-to-face because their premises are quite small. So we've had a reduction in support, an increase in pressure to drink, and sadly that has really impacted upon our service. I think we've spoken a little bit about transplantation and how you can make it happen in a COVID era. Certainly we are small enough in England with small enough centres that we've been able to move patients around. And the way our pandemic has panned out is that there's generally one part of the country that's going down when another's coming up. London very often leads. The North tends to get the wave a little later. So we've been moving patients around. We've generally managed to have at least one of the transplant centres functional. That has meant, of course, that we've changed our listing criteria a little bit. We've been focusing on people who are very sick and actually moving patients you know, from London up to Birmingham, up to Newcastle, to take advantage of the space and the resources that are available. Not always possible to do that, but I think it's fostered a much more collaborative spirit in the transplant centres. There's always a bit of one-upmanship, as you well know, with our surgical colleagues, and we like to play on that. But I do think that 
pandemic has really shown that people working together collaboratively can generate significant benefits for patients. But I guess the question for us and for our patients is very much, if you were offered a transplant during a COVID pandemic, would you want to take it? Would you want to be immunosuppressed during a pandemic? Uh, and I think, Paul, the, the data from America is really very encouraging that we shouldn't be worried about that. Yes, Graham, I absolutely agree with that. Like you, uh, in Great Britain, the U.S. had tremendous disruption initially in our transplant volume and also the distribution. And the initial reports, it was just remarkable within the same UNOS region, you would just center to center variability was just dramatic. And it would be, it was just like, it was the pocket of where the COVID was particularly heavy. So if you're in an area of a certain state where COVID is particularly heavy, it's going to be much harder to do liver transplants and any other transplant. Whereas if you are just maybe not that far away, but the impact of COVID is not as severe. You're able to not continue with business as usual, but you're able to continue your transplant rate or maintain it at a reasonable clip. Uh, we did get a glimpse of how the earliest parts of the COVID pandemic are affecting a liver transplant, at least on a national level. And this was a very nice paper that was presented at our recent liver meeting that looked at our UNOS database from March 11th to September 11th in 2020 and compared it to the pre-COVID period exactly one year prior. And this also, interestingly, we also had during this period change in national liver organ allocation system where we went to these so-called concentric circles uh, that allowed us to prioritize transplants differently than we had historically here in the U.S. When they looked at this data for the three-month period, what they found was that with the number or the volume of transplants actually fell significantly. There were 4% fewer transplants. And as we've already been discussing, Graham, not surprisingly, alcoholic-associated liver disease was the primary driver during the COVID period. And this also increased significantly. And it was already, again, on the rise from the pre-COVID period. In addition, liver transplant recipients in the COVID era, at least the first three months, they are sicker. Their, higher, their median meld was higher at 25 they did have a lower waitlist time, actually of almost 32 days, and this was also significant. There were greater resources needed, uh, including hemodialysis. There were higher rates of uh, multi-organ transplant also uh, required. And interestingly, our surgeons actually were using higher risk organs. That is, the donor risk index was significantly higher during the COVID period. All of these pre-transplant data actually translated into some small reduction in, that was significant in graft and patient survival at 90 days post-transplant. And uh, the survival rate was just statistically significant, 94.5 versus 95.2%. And for graft survival and uh, this patient survival was also just a tick lower at 96% as well. And again, the differences here appeared to be more pronounced after 30 days post-transplant. Interestingly, Graham, you had talked about, would you want to transplant uh, in the era of COVID and take all this immunosuppression? Interestingly, rejection episodes before discharge were actually higher during the COVID period. COVID-19 infection was the primary cause of death in 3% of the total deaths in patients who were transplanted during the COVID period. And again, by multivariate analysis, the COVID-19 period was an independent risk factor for graft failure as well. And so that was our U.S snapshot, it'll be fascinating because as time evolves, we'll see if this 30-day data, when we see longer follow-up periods, 
whether or not the transplant community here in the U.S. is able to ameliorate or mitigate some of these early changes. Uh, certainly, we all had to adapt very quickly, Graham. Can you tell us a little bit about what you did and how you adapted in the U.K.? Well, very much the same sort of approach that you followed, which is to prioritize the sickest patients. We move patients around a great deal to take advantage. I think our data is considerably smaller than yours. And I think that one of the take-home messages for me is how minimal the impact of COVID has been, because we're not really seeing the impact. You need your huge 8,000 patient studies to detect the impact of COVID on transplant outcomes. And I think that's a testament to the the efforts that everyone has made to get these patients through. Certainly, we saw, as you might expect, a marked reduction in transplantation activity. A lot of that was related to bed availability for both donors and recipients, of course. And I think donations plummeted during the entire period. And that, of course, was a pressure on our ITU beds. When you've got a queue of people waiting in casualty, keeping someone going for harvesting, sadly, is a, a difficult choice that has to be made. And very often, it's the sick patient in casualty who has to take priority. So we lost, I think, a lot of organs. And as you say, those that we did manage to utilize were very often a little bit substandard and organs that perhaps we would normally have rejected. But I think the other side of the coin, of course, is what happens if you have a transplant and you go on and catch COVID? And that's turning the, uh, the status around a little bit. And I think this surprised me, to be honest. I was expecting people with a functioning liver transplant to do very badly with coronavirus infection. But in fact, as the data shows, the mortality was slightly lower. What I think is fascinating about this is that these patients were getting into hospital quickly. They were more likely to end up on an ICU. They were more likely to have invasive ventilation. So I think what was happening here is a group of medicalized patients who knew when to call for help, had early access to support systems, got in in time, and were able to be ventilated, supported, and came through. And I think one of the tragedies that we've seen in England is people presenting late. And if you turn up late with COVID, then you do, as you know, very badly. So I think we've been able to support our transplant patients very well. And I think the data really is quite compelling. Yeah, I agree with you completely. And I would just add also that more recently, Graham, what we have found is that if you are vaccinated and are a transplant recipient, you know, you may be in the hospital, but again, Severe COVID, as you're indicating, uh, the vaccine certainly mitigate that. And there was excellent data that was presented at the liver meeting from the VA data base here in the U.S. that actually showed that vaccinated transplant patients also did better uh, and had improved survival. So all the efforts are bearing fruit at this time. Yes, I think that's right. I think we're starting to learn and, uh, and pool our knowledge. I think one of the issues that that is starting to emerge is how we should manage immunosuppressive regimens in patients post-transplant. There's a little bit of data suggesting that high-dose mycophenolate shouldn't be your favorite regimen. I have to say we've proved very reluctant to start meddling with immunosuppression in our patients. If you start meddling, you need to bring them into hospital for more blood tests, and I suspect you can do more harm than good. Have you been happy keeping most of your patients on mycophenolate, Paul, or are you starting to switch? No, actually, we take a similar tact, which is that uh, the pursuit of perfect may actually cause more difficulty for our patients. And so if someone comes in with severe COVID, we would certainly adjust or withhold the mycophenolate. As you said, that's it's high dose mycophenolate. We would do that. But otherwise, we haven't made many changes and we have not had 
patients get into too much difficulty. Obviously, it's a small group that gets severe COVID post-transplant, and, and these are the ones I think we'll all have, we'll have to address. But I think these cases are best addressed uh, case by case without making broad changes in immunosuppressive regimens during this era. I think that's true. And of course, we're moving into a very different environment now where we have some effective therapies that will, we hope, start to mitigate patients with COVID-19. We've really embraced this in England. We're setting up early treatment units. Every patient in England who is at risk has had a personal letter from the chief medical officer with instant access to PCR testing and instructions to contact the local centre. And the idea is that people who are at risk can get treated within a few days of their first diagnosis. And we're either using monoclonal antibodies, which are currently the, the most widely available, but we're starting to see some oral medication coming through. You'll be pleased to hear that we have prioritized our patients with liver disease. The mortality, as you well know, in those with decompensated cirrhosis from COVID is really very alarming, very worrying. We've added our liver transplant patients on, but all of these are being taken on a case-by-case basis. And I rather suspect that quite a lot of our liver transplant recipients are not going to be turning up for the monoclonal antibodies. I suspect we'll be infusing them into the decompensated cirrhotics, where they really may well prove to be very important. I'm slightly anxious about the drugs coming through to treat COVID, the um, the first-generation protease inhibitor coming through, the Paxlovid medicines is just about to be licensed in, we hope, in Europe and in the UK. Are you concerned about going back to ritonavir-boosted protease inhibitors in liver patients, Paul? Yes. And in fact, this takes us back to an era where we used uh, paratapravir, which was ritonavir-boosted. And Graham, like you, like me, it could be done. And, and in fact, you know, it, it can be done, but it, re- it does require a substantial adjustment of your immunosuppressive backbone therapies. And this is tacrolimus and cyclosporin because of the ritonavir drug interaction. So for that reason, uh, we have not yet been using Paxlovid, the uh, protease inhibitor, in the post-transplant, but rather uh, in our individuals who are post-transplant who get COVID, we have been transitioning these individuals to uh, the monoclonal antibody Zotrovimab. And you know, as you know here, this is the monoclonal antibody that seems to be effective against the Omicron variant as opposed to the other monoclonals. But like you have a prioritization pathway for these individuals. Happily, some of our patients who have acquired uh, the COVID post-transplant actually have extremely mild disease, which is uh, something that we hope we'll see more and more frequently. But when required, we really transitioned primarily to monoclonal antibody therapy for our post-transplant patients. With regard to pre-transplant, they're, I think, quite a bit more comfortable with the use of protease inhibitor that will be ritonavir boosted, again, in more advanced disease is going to be more problematic, Ram. But uh, we have not yet had the opportunity. It's still early. But but I would envision that that would be something with appropriate inspection of drug-drug interactions that is a, a much more straightforward task to help improve the outcomes in the cirrhotic patients who were coming through our centers when they acquire COVID. Yes, I think that's right. We've got to be very cautious in these decompensated cirrhotic patients. Uh, They're at terribly high risk from COVID, but it's not a trivial agent to be using, and we don't yet have very much experience. It's interesting to see how we are shifting to highly specialized care for these new medicines. I don't know how you're finding your hepatitis C programs, but we're going in entirely the opposite direction with ours. 
And we're starting to hand the pills out, not quite on street corners by friends, but getting close to that. We've been empowering nurses in the community to treat patients with little more than a phone call and a discussion. We have a very good program of peers who've been out in the community helping people to get access to hepatitis C medication. And that's really shifted our focus to task shifting in a very big way. And I hope that we haven't seen the end of that. I hope we're going to see pharmacists prescribing and dispensing the hepatitis C medicines. And my hope is long term, of course, that we can get anti-COVID pills that we go down the same way. Are you finding that you're dropping barriers to hepatitis C treatment in a positive way, Paul? Yes. When patients come to us now with hepatitis C, we have used the adaptations that we have created in the COVID pandemic to essentially diagnose these individuals and get them initiated on therapy rapidly now. In other words, we have been able to take some of the very complex procedures like a liver transplant evaluation or organizing the care of a hepatocellular carcinoma patient who requires treatment. We've been able to extend these techniques to hepatitis C, which we already were treating with virtual efforts for the last several years, but we've really now just made this our standard approach for the treatment of viral hepatitis. And this is both, by the way, uh, Graham, viral hepatitis B and viral hepatitis C. So we see these individuals virtually, they can get their blood tests. Obviously, fibrosis assessment is still something that they may have to come in for, but we have adapted now to using just some of the non-invasive markers. And when, when a FIB4 is a, just a very straightforward value, uh, you know, we're quite satisfied that uh, we can just move forward with getting these individuals treated and hopefully then accompany this with any appropriate harm reduction. The pandemic really has, just like it did for alcohol use disorder, it has really disrupted individual support systems. So unfortunately, tragically, we're seeing higher rates of injection drug use now. And so there's more hepatitis out there to be treated. And we need to be able to leverage what we've learned with uh, the COVID pandemic to make sure that these individuals, in addition to getting their appropriate care vaccinations for COVID, also are appropriately screened, diagnosed, and linked to care for their viral hepatitis. Given that COVID is going to be a disease that will be with us, coronaviruses, they're going to be with us. And you know, I'm hopeful that we will transition perhaps to an endemic infection rather than having these widespread pandemics. But I would envision, given that to control this, we're going to need to engage individuals who typically do not engage the healthcare systems worldwide. This is our opportunity to link some of our COVID or coronavirus efforts to hepatitis E and hepatitis B viral elimination. And I, I am hoping that we'll be able to design interventions that we'll, we'll be able to link these efforts. And it can, it can be with viral hepatitis, but it can be with many other interventions that require the attention from a public health perspective, Graham. I couldn't agree more. And I think one of the things that we have changed in the COVID era is our shift to more of a public health focus. And I think for me, the take-home message has been that perfection is sometimes the enemy of the good. And actually, you can do a lot more with a little bit less. And I think the things that we've been discussing are very much about looking at parts of your pathway, whether it be transplantation, whether it be liver cancer treatment, whether it be hep C, hep B, looking at the patient pathway, the patient journey, and seeing how much simpler you can make it without sacrificing quality. I don't think any of us want to see any sacrifices in quality, but the sort of data you're showing shows very clearly 
that what we're doing now works, it's better for patients, it's better for health systems. And as you say, we need to grab those advantages and take them forward. And we mustn't drift back to the old days where patients had to come into the clinic just to say hello and have a blood test. I've got to be honest, Paul, I did like seeing patients face to face. I don't like telephone clinics, but it's better for patients. And it's what we're going to have to learn to do in the future. Yeah, I I could not agree more. You know, an in-person visit, one certainly picks up things that you cannot pick up virtually. And particularly for complex dynamics, being in the room with a patient is invaluable compared to video visits. But on the other hand, like you said, um, aiming for perfection in, in this current era is not possible. And by willingly adapting our approaches, we're now accessing individuals who heretofore had not been engaged in the healthcare system. Of all the terrible disruptions we've had over the past two years, I think that's one of the benefits that we've had is that we now have an infrastructure to engage more people. And I think by taking advantage of what has been created, we're going to be able to make an impact in viral hepatitis elimination in addition to addressing liver disease and all of the other challenges that we certainly face. Well, I agree entirely. I think it's a brave new world. It's been a lot of fun chatting. I think we've covered an enormous amount of ground from the virus to malignancy. I hope you've enjoyed it. I hope the audience has enjoyed it. And uh, I shall wish you all uh, a very good day. And Graham, thank you for a great discussion and look forward to seeing how the fruits of our labor are turning out a year or two from now. Yes, indeed. Thank you so very much to Drs. Quo and Foster for sharing that engaging discussion. And thanks to our listeners for joining in. As a reminder, to view the full educational program online, Lessons from Lockdown, click on the link in the show notes. And please be sure to check back regularly for more episodes on important infectious disease topics. 